There was an article in the Wall Street Journal in recent days entitled, The Price We Pay for Being Less Social. The author, who is a professor of communications at the University of Kansas, sought to underscore the consequences of a society that is becoming less and less connected. He says, quote, it won't come as a surprise that many of us are spending less time with other people. And we probably think we can name the obvious culprits that keep us disconnected, forces such as social media or pandemic restrictions, end quote. I think we can all understand that. Social media makes it easy for us to be less connected. You don't have to pick up the phone. You don't have to write a letter. You don't have to visit anyone. Just look at their feed and the social media account, right? And of course, everything that we see in someone's feed in social media is like the exact truth of what's going on in the world. It's never embellished. They, never, they always you know, paint the, the most realistic picture possible, right? <laughs> Moreover, in the past couple of years, the events of the world has had us reacting to others with increased suspicion. I mean, if someone coughs nowadays, our first reaction is to recoil, right? <laughs> Before we might have offered a cough drop, now we're considering leaving the area. <laughs> of course, during the height of the pandemic, we rarely saw anyone face to face. Spoken with a number of pastors in recent months, churches everywhere are still feeling the effects of the pandemic on their congregations. Some have simply never returned. Others have returned sporadically, taking advantage of streaming services more often than not thinking that to be equivalent to gathering together, which it is not. However, as this professor of communications points out later on, it's not just the pandemic, nor is it just social media. The article he wrote was born out of a study in which he analyzed time diary data from three countries. Time diary data is basically data that shows how people spend their time. And he found, after doing this analyzation, that time spent talking to other people, both inside the home and outside of it, has been on decline for nearly 30 years. For the past three decades, in other words. Now that certainly coincides well with the general increase in dependence on technology, not just social media, but technology as a whole. Our almost universal dependence on the internet, on email, smartphones, Yes, social media, all of that has been fueling this decline over the past three decades. We are becoming increasingly less willing and capable of interacting socially with others. The author of this article pointed to what he believes to be one of the main reasons for this decline, apart from the external things that I mentioned. He says, and I quote, in short, people are exhausting. Humans have an innate desire to conserve our energy and social interactions, and interacting takes work. It's tiring to act in a certain way for the benefit of others. Sometimes people have disagreeable opinions or talk about uninteresting things. That's certainly true. When given a choice, people often refer to just not deal with all that. He goes on. Self-care regimes focus on cultivation of mindful, inwardly focused life. They're increasing efforts to cut other people in the name of removing toxicity. And all these tendencies are pushed forward by frictionless technologies that remove social obligations to leave home, talk to others, and engage in our communities, end quote. Well, people are exhausting, right? We all understand that. I mean, we can be exhausting to others, though we rarely admit that. 
But it is as he said, socially interacting with others takes work. Acting a certain way, whatever that certain way is, for the benefit of others takes work and energy. And it's easier to simply not deal with it. It doesn't help that the common rule of the day is self-care, right? Care for yourself, love yourself, forgive yourself, be patient with yourself. Do all these things to take care of yourself so that you can have the energy that you need to properly care for others. That's at least how the ideology started. Now it's more like care for yourself because you are the one who matters the most. Forget about others. Your needs are the most important. Yes, cut off that toxicity in your life. Cut off those people who don't do it for you, who don't cater to you. And all the artificial ways that we have to engage in, with others, social media, electronic mail, some other app or device, makes cutting off those who don't do it for you so much easier. Well, Dr. Al Mohler, in commenting on this article, said that the whole attitude describes, really, early adolescence. He says, quote, it defines the period in which young persons all of a sudden discover they have an interior life. They withdraw into that interior, interior life and every once in a while condescend to come out with the rest of God's human creatures. That does kind of sum it up, right? Early adolescence, discovering the inner you, thinking that the inner you, the thoughts you have, the desires you have are the most important thing in the world at that moment. No one else knows or can tell you what's going, what's going on or what you're going through, mostly because it's in your head and you don't share it with others. This is the time in young people's lives when they're the most withdrawn, the most retreating, the least sociable, unless it is their, in their own peer group out of a perceived sense of commonality and camaraderie. The reality is, though, that that's not the way the world works. It's not the way the real world will work, but they don't understand that yet. We can't function in the real world and expect to have any success being sullen, withdrawn, unwilling, and unable to interact with others. Contrary to popular beliefs in certain 80s songs, the thought processes of young people everywhere, parents really do understand what you're going through. Well, Dr. Moeller points out that this way of thinking is similar to adolescent youth to make the point that we as a society have withdrawn into a way of thinking that is comparison, comparable to that. We're just like adolescent youth in the way we live and interact these days. To simply give up on social interactions, to withdraw into ourselves, to think that our way of thinking is the only right way of thinking, to refuse to put forth energy, the energy that it takes to engage with others, makes us, quote, an entire society that is now trapped in something like an electronically, digitally driven early adolescence. And he says, to put it simply, that is a big problem. I'll read this quote here, and I think it's a good one. He says, there is a big problem when people are less social. There is a problem when communities begin to thin out simply because people are no longer contributing to the building of the community. The fact is, if you are nicer to your neighbors, you care more about them, you will act in more positive ways towards them and towards their good if you know them. People are exhausting. That's the cost of having a relationship. He goes on, and this is what I want us to focus on here. He says, the Christian worldview reminds us that we are not incidentally social creatures. It's not on accident that we are social creatures. It's not a byproduct of something else that we are social creatures. We were made to be social creatures. 
We were made to be social creatures. That means at least two things. The first is that we were made to be social means that if we're not social, we're missing out on a critical component of what it means to be human. We were made to be social creatures as human beings. We're missing out on something that was given for our benefit. The second, that we were made to be social, means that if we're not social, we're rebelling against an essential element of our purpose, the purpose for which we were made to begin with. In other words, we were made by God to be social for a reason, not just for our benefit, but for a greater reason. Consider this for a moment. In the beginning, in Genesis 2, where we have a detailed description of the creation of the first man, God says in chapter 2, verse 18, it is not good for man to be alone. Up until that point, the act of creating was underscored by God's own evaluation when he said that all of what he made up until that point was good. But in this case, something was not good. What was not good was for man to be alone. Man, this creature who alone is created in the image of God, who is created to fill the earth, to rule over the earth on behalf of God, it was not good for him to be alone. He needed a helper. He needed someone suitable for him or corresponding to him. In other words, from the very beginning, it was God's design that man live in relationship to others. The most basic form of relationship is the one corresponding between a man and his wife, and that makes sense, right? There could be no society without that basic relationship. One man, one woman to propagate the species. Again, it's always going to be that way, no matter what contemporary ideology tries to say. No society will exist. No society will continue to exist without that most basic element of human existence, One male, one female coming together and propagating the species. But if we miss that point, the point that relationship is significant, then we miss out on a crucial gift that God intended in giving us to one another. Again, one man, one woman in relationship with one another, complementing each other, both together reflecting the image of God in the world, both with their own roles in relationship and then the greater society, both together a part of the mandate to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. This is the way that it's been since the very beginning. Again, why is it not good for man to be alone? The implication of the text in Genesis 1 and 2 is that the whole created order, all other living creatures followed the same pattern, a man and a helper, a male and a female corresponding to them. But it's more than that, right? Because we know that men are more than just glorified beasts. Again, humanity was created in the image of God in Genesis 1.27. We're told that he were created in the image of God both as male and female. Humanity was created in his image and given rule and authority over everything that was created. In other words, again, there's something about the relationship between male and female and their relationship together that communicates the image of God. In theology, when we talk about God, we reference the Trinity. Our statement of faith says this, The eternal triune God reveals himself to us as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit with distinct personal attributes but without division of nature, essence, or being. The doctrine of the Trinity, which is on display throughout Scripture, seeks to unfold what God has revealed about himself in Scripture. There is one God existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons existing in perfect unity, three persons distinct in role or function, but one God. 
Now, there have been many different kinds of illustrations used to describe the Trinity. In my opinion, one of the best, though certainly every, every analogy has its limitations, but one of the best, I think, is thinking about the federal government. Right? We have one federal government, but there are three branches with three different roles. We have the executive branch, the legislative branch, and the judicial branch. The executive branch enforces the law. The legislative branch creates the law. The judicial branch oversees the law and makes sure that it is enforced properly. Three different branches, but one government. All of them have significant power and authority. We may tend to think about the presidency and the executive branch more often than not, but each branch has a separation of power, has a role, has authority in its own right. But there's still just one federal government. Well, that God exists in three persons, that these three persons exist in perfect unity, perfect harmony, each with a distinct role and function, helps us to understand the significance of relationship in the mind of God. Moreover, it helps us to understand why God has created us from the very beginning to be social creatures in relationship with one another. Because being in a necessary relationship with one another, with diverse roles, but unified helps us to express an essential element of God's nature. We are made in his image, again, in order to bear his image in the world. Therefore, this essential element of his nature, the unity and diversity within the Trinity, is borne out in part in a relationship that exists between humanity, among humanity, males and females. Now, we know that man has fallen due to sin. His relationship with God has been broken, yet the image remains, though it is in some ways tainted. As we consider the redemptive plan of God, particularly the church, what we must understand is that a large purpose of the church was to redeem mankind so that they would again be able to effectively bear the image of God in the world. Again, we're moving into a new study in the book of Ephesians. Part of what we'll learn in the book of Ephesians is that the church In the church, God is creating what Paul calls a new man. And this new man is made up of people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Again, diversity, but unified. This new man is made up of people who are gifted in a variety of ways by the Spirit of God to perform a variety of functions. Again, diversity, but unified. As we get a perspective of the big picture, the design of God for this one new man, it'll be clear that this one new man, the church, is the means by which God intends to display his glory to the cosmos today. How is God at work in the world? How is God communicating himself to the world? He's doing that through the church. The church exists for this primary purpose, to display the glory of God. In Ephesians 3, after Paul makes it clear that he's praying for the church to know God, to know the love of Christ, to be the diverse body that it is, but to be unified in its diversity, and thereby, as he says, they're filled up to all the fullness of God. As that is accomplished, as the church in its unity and diversity is filled up with all the fullness of God, then we see the purpose in chapter 3, verse 21. To him, to God, be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen, Paul says. Now, I won't labor this point for too long, but we all know what the glory of God is, yes? The glory of God biblically has a concrete significance of weightiness. If something is glorious, it is weighty. We talk about someone throwing their weight around. We used to have that phrase more often back in the day. 
if they're somewhat of importance, for some reason they can take advantage of this by simply stating their importance or their significance, and people tend to do whatever they want. Their importance, their influence, their weight, their glory is what they throw around. Well, the glory of God is his weightiness, his importance, his significance, his grandeur, his worthiness. It is all of those things and more. His glory is comprised of the sum total of his character. All of who he is, to the infinite degree, makes up his glory. The desire to put his glory on display is the reason why he created to begin with. Again, Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky proclaims his handiwork. Also see Romans 1. It is why he created humanity, again, to bear his image among creation. We already looked at Genesis 1. The desire to put his glory on display is why he sent his son, the Lord Jesus, after the fall to display his glory. In Hebrews 1, Jesus is called the radiance of the glory of God. It says in the text, he is the radiance of his glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Whereas the first man failed to bear the image of God for his disobedience, Jesus, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, is the very radiance of the glory of God. The Son of God, the Word of God, the second member of the Trinity, became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, John says in John 1. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father. Going back to Hebrews, Hebrews 2 says that it is the death of Jesus, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, that brings many sons to glory. Jesus is the builder of this new house. He's the one who initiates the new birth for mankind by his blood. He brings us to glory. He redeems us to share in his glory and thus helps us to bear the glorious image of God in the world. John 17 which Chris read earlier for us, we hear these words. Jesus prays before he goes to the cross, sanctify them in in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, meaning the apostles, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's us that they may all be one, listen, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. You think the unity of the church was important to Jesus? The oneness of the church, the diversity of the church, but yes, the unity of the church. Bearing the unity of the Trinity. Bearing the image of that to the world. Do you think that was important to Jesus? I've given you a lot to chew on this morning, but if you hear nothing else, hear this. The church exists Not for our own glory, not for our own comfort, not to make much of us, but ultimately to magnify the glory of God. We've talked about that word magnify before, the idea of making something bigger. 
We have magnifying glasses. We have those jumbotrons. I like this analogy. We have those jumbotrons in the middle of our, the sports stadiums, right? You go to a sports stadium to be able to be there, to be among the people, to see it, to get the experience. But sometimes you're sitting so far up in the, the nosebleed section that you can't really see the details of what's happening. So they put those big screens up there. And it's kind of like you're at home. You could probably sit at home and watch the same thing. But they put those big screens up there to blow up the field for you. So you can see the play magnified. Well, the church exists to be that big screen for God. To be that big screen for the glory of God. To magnify him. To magnify his glory to the world. The unity in the midst of its diversity bears forth the image and glory of God to the world. Listen, this is why we must get the church right. This is why we must do church right. This is why we must gather together. This is why we must be concerned with one another. This is why we must engage in the lives of each other. This is why we must use our gifts to serve one another. This is why church membership is more than just a name on a roll. And if that's all it is, it's not really church membership. This is why we must protect and guard church membership, not treat it flippantly. That is why we need to be present and accounted for, why we cannot, as the rest of the world, retreat into an electronic, digitally driven early adolescence. We cannot retreat into ourselves. We cannot be only concerned with ourselves, driven by a desire to be with ourselves, for ourselves, by ourselves. We were created in Christ Jesus to be social creatures. We are created in Christ Jesus to be social creatures, to be functioning members of the body of Christ for the glory of God to be magnified among us. That is the message of the book of Ephesians. It is my prayer that as we embark on this study, as we consider this message from the 30,000-foot perspective of God and his redemptive purposes from eternity past to a street-level perspective where we consider how each of us interacts with each other on a day-to-day basis and all the way to the perspective of eternity future as we look forward to the riches of the kindness of God that await us, that as we consider these things, we would commit to each other and to the Lord anew to live our lives as his church for his glory above all other human considerations. I wonder how often we consider that. That God has given us new life in the church, that he's made us a part of his church for the purpose of displaying his glory in the world. Do you daily consider that fact? Did you think about that at all this past week? Does that fact influence your decisions in life, day to day, moment by moment? Does it influence your relationship with others in the body of Christ and outside the body of Christ? Do you consider that God made you, you who were a wretch, a sinner, a lawbreaker, you whose ransom cost him the life of his son? Do you consider that God made you a part of his church? Not to glorify you, not to make much of you, but to make much of him? God has created us in Christ as his church in order to bring him glory. This ought to be the primary consideration for our lives each and every day. It ought to control and inform all of our decisions and actions. Well, I pray that this will become clear to us as we embark on the study of the letter to the Ephesians. Yes, that was all introduction. 
It was a rather lengthy introduction, but it was the context. It gives, I hope, the context of our study in the book of Ephesians. This is why we must study the book of Ephesians, why it is good for us to be reminded of the purposes of God for the church. Now we'll switch gears just a little bit. Turn with me to the book of Ephesians if you haven't. We'll briefly consider a little bit of background for the letter itself because it is an actual letter that was written from Paul to the church of the Ephesians. And so we're going to think about it that way. And then we'll look briefly at just the first two verses of the letter as it is Paul's introductory words. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word which is true, your word which sanctifies us. As we come before your word this morning, as we embark on the study in this letter of Ephesians, we pray as Jesus prayed that you would sanctify us by your truth, that you would set us apart by your truth, that you would help us to be the church as we think about what this means, what this letter means, what Ephesians means, who the church is, who we are, and who we ought to be. Convict our hearts where we need to. Correct our thinking where we need to. Encourage our hearts where we need encouragement. Strengthen our hearts where we need to be strengthened. And I pray that all of this would come with joy and with your grace and with your peace for your glory, for your people. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively be acceptable in your sight. Lord, again, you are our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the opening words of Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Well, a little bit of background on the letter. Paul originally visited Ephesus on his second missionary journey around Acts chapters 18 through 20. He returned again on a subsequent journey and spent three years teaching and helping to further establish the church. Ephesus, for its part, was a very influential city in Paul's day. One author commented that it was known as the mother of Asia Minor. He also says, and I quote, it was influential regarding politics, headquarters of the Roman proconsul. It was influential regarding commerce. It was a major port city of the west coast of Asia. And major roads converged there. And it was influential concerning religion. It was home of the Temple of Artemis. It was the largest trading center in Asia Minor, west of Tarsus, and was located at the mouth of the Castor River. It had some 200 to 250,000 residents in the greater area of the city. Only Rome and Alexandria were larger than Ephesus at that time. It had a multi-ethnic population, including many Jewish residents. Again, the Temple of Artemis was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The Temple of Artemis was four times the size of the Parthenon in Athens, with columns 60 feet high. The temple itself was a major banking center. The image of Artemis was on the coin. A month was named after her. Athletic games were named after her. She was a trusted guardian and protector of the city. Artemis was one of their primary gods of worship. There's no wonder why there was nearly a riot in Acts chapter 19 due to Paul's presence and influence. Ephesians was a city of great significance, in other words. Paul knew this, which is why he spent a significant amount of time there. 
When he left Ephesus for the last time, he prophesied that after his departure, trouble would come. In Acts 20, 28, to the elders at Ephesus, he said, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from your own cells will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. He was concerned for the church. He knew how easy it would be for them to lose focus, to lose sight of what was important. He knew that there would always be those who sought to take advantage of the church to move it away from its mission. Of course, he sends Timothy to Ephesus later on. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 3, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach a different doctrine. And it goes on from there. Timothy was sent for the purpose of putting things in order, of addressing false teaching and correcting those who are in error. Now, we don't know the full effect of Timothy's ministry there at Ephesus, but we do know that the Apostle John later took up residency there for a time. The final biblical testimony that we have concerning Ephesus many years after Paul's first visit is sobering. In the book of Revelation, John writes, To the angel of the church at Ephesus, write this, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. The church is both commended and warned. It is commended for its stand against evil. It is warned because, as John says in his text, they abandoned their first love. There's much speculation as to what that means. It likely means that they abandon love in general for Christ and for her people. Perhaps they become so zealous for the truth, for the rejection of what is evil, that they were failing to love one another and to truly love Christ. I personally had the privilege of visiting the ancient city of Ephesus many years ago when I visited modern-day Turkey. I'll say that it was both ironic and a bit sad to walk through the roads of Ephesus and to see on the one hand some places where you had still had crosses etched in the stonework, and on the other hand, to see statues of Artemis and various other idolatrous worship. There's always the danger of losing perspective, perspective on what is important and what is significant. There's a danger of being carried away by the philosophies of the day. We've talked about that many times before, of being influenced by the world, Humanly speaking, Ephesus had some spiritual giants walk its road. Paul, Timothy, who we know had significant ministry alongside Paul, and later the Apostle John. And yet now that city lies in ruins. More than that, today the city lies in a nation that is probably somewhere around 98, 99% Muslim. Makes me wonder where the church in America will be in the next 10, 20, 30 years. The reality is that losing perspective is something that can happen to all of us. Thus, the warning to keep our eyes on Christ, to keep pursuing his purposes is always important. When I think of the city of Ephesus, I hear a warning in my head. Don't lose your first love. Watch out for those savage wolves. As Paul says to Timothy, keep close watch on yourselves. 
I believe this letter was intended to serve as a reminder to the church of Ephesus when Paul wrote it, a documented reminder of who the church is and why it is important for us to keep that focus. Moving on, Paul wrote the letter to the Ephesians most likely while he was in Rome under house arrest after he appealed to Caesar. That puts it between 59 and 61 AD by most accounts. He wrote the letter of Colossians to Philemon around the same time. Colossians and Ephesians are both have some similar content. In terms of themes, there's already, I already mentioned the idea of unity and diversity. There's unity and diversity within the Trinity. We'll talk about that in chapter one as we go through. Unity and diversity in the church on display and the fact that God has brought together both Jew and Gentile in the church in chapter two. Also unity and diversity of the church which exists under one Lord, one faith, one baptism, but that has a diversity of gifts and a diversity of services. That's in chapter four. There's a theme of prayer. Paul prays for this church two times, once in chapter one and also in chapter three. And then in chapter six, we return to the importance of prayer. He encourages prayer for all the saints as we think about spiritual warfare. There's also an emphasis on spiritual things in general. Ephesus had a a large focus on idolatry. They were very idolatrous, but they're also very into spiritual um, warfare. There was a lot of emphasis on the spirit and on demonic power and on magic. And so Paul is emphasizing here that the one who is in the church is greater than the one who is in the world. The ministry of the Spirit becomes a great focus. The Spirit is the one who seals us in chapter 1. The Spirit builds us into a dwelling of God in chapter 2. The Spirit helps us to love one another in chapter 3. The Spirit gifts us to serve one another in chapter 4. The Spirit empowers us living out our faith in chapters 4 through 6. And of course, again, in chapter 6, the Spirit helps us with spiritual warfare. Then, of course, there's a theme of the glory of God, and we see that throughout, and we'll talk about that more. And an outline for the letter of Ephesians is, um, I mean, it can, it can be pretty basic or it can be pretty detailed. I'll just give you the, ba- the bare bones of it. We see Paul's praise after his introduction in the first two verses. Paul's praise for the blessing of God's power that is at work in the church. And that is from chapter 1, verses 3, all the way through verse 14. That is one long, run-on sentence. Paul would have gotten into a lot of trouble if he were in grammar school today. The one long, run-on sentence, and it's really all about praising God for his power at work in the church. After that, Paul prays for the church to know the power of God. It's one thing to praise God for his power, to give thanks to God for his power. It's another thing to actually know his power and to experience his power, for his power to be working among us. And Paul prays for that in the church in verses 15 through 23 of chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, going all the way through chapter 3, verse 21, Paul gives us a picture or a description of God's power at work in the church. He talks about how God's power works to unite us with Christ, to make us alive together with him. He talks about how God's power works to unite us with one another, to build us into a body, a new man. He talks about how God works to bring us into the church through the ministry of the apostles. And Paul talks a little bit about his ministry there in chapter 3. And then he prays again for us, for God's power to work in the church and really to effect unity 
to help that unity that we have in Christ to be effective. And then we see Paul's plea for the church to walk in the power of God. He says, now that you know that God's power is at work among you, I'm praying that God would help you to walk that way. And so we see a series of walks, walk in unity, walk in truth, walk in love, walk in the power of God. And then we have a conclusion. Well, all of that was just a bit of background, a bit of a reminder of what is at stake here as we go through the letter of Ephesians and what we'll see in the remaining time that we have, just a few minutes here, I'll cover again those first two verses. We already read them together, verses one and two. In these opening verses, we see what we would typically see in a letter of antiquity. We see the sender identified, we see the recipients identified, and then a brief greeting. While Paul is identified as the writer of this letter, he further qualifies himself there in verse 1 as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. The word apostle means one who is sent. The significance of the one who is sent depends on who does the sending. I mean, anyone could have an apostle, right? Anyone could potentially send someone on an errand to be their representative. I could send someone to your house asking for taxes in my name. You'd probably laugh. You'd probably call the police to have the person removed. Even the president of Russia could send a representative to your house to collect taxes from Mother Russia. He could do that, but you wouldn't have to respond to it. If the IRS, on the other hand, sent a representative (laughs) to collect taxes from you, you might have some trouble. You would have to deal with that, right? So the sender of this emissary, the apostle, the, the one who is being sent, is significant. Well, Jesus says, has, has some whom he has sent personally into the world to be his representatives, to bear the good news of his coming kingdom. They are properly called apostles with a capital A. Some people may call themselves apostles, but unless they have been specifically called by Jesus to go out into the world, and unless they, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, show the signs of a true apostle, then they're not apostles in the same sense. And they're to be disregarded. The apostles were sent out to help build and establish the church, Paul's going to talk about the fact that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets in our letter. They were particularly gifted by the Spirit to be able to authenticate their messages with signs. And those signs were intended to be just that, authentication of the truth. Paul was an apostle in the strictest sense. He was called by Christ on the road to Damascus, sent as an apostle, not to the Jews, but really to the Gentiles. Acts chapter 9, verse 15 Jesus said to a disciple named Ananias concerning Paul, he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. Back to our text, Paul was an apostle by the will of God. Again, he's acknowledging that he was specifically chosen by God for this purpose. Christ appeared to Paul because the will of God demanded it. Paul was a chosen instrument of God to help establish the church for his glory. Now, he was very vocal about the fact that he was chosen by the will of God. He says it this way in Galatians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He had to emphasize that because people always sought to undermine his authority. But back in in the letter to the Ephesians, it's significant that he indicates that he is an apostle by the will of God 
Because both Jews and Gentiles are being brought into the church, and some might have thought that was suspicious. Again, it was very easy in the early church for the Jews to be suspicious of anyone supposing that Gentiles would be a part of the plan of God. Again, we just studied the book of Jonah, right? Jonah's sentiment towards Nineveh was not unique to him. Israel as a whole would have shuddered to think that God's grace, his mercy, his kindness, his covenant faithfulness would also be provided to the Gentiles. That would have been shocking news. Perhaps God would be merciful to the Gentiles in some other way, but for a man who persecuted the church to show up preaching the gospel to the Gentiles and then claiming that the Gentiles belong together with Jews in the church, that would have sounded preposterous. As Paul Paul spends some time in chapter 3 addressing this issue, he calls it a mystery, and he says the reality is that this was not known to previous generations. But now today, in Paul's day, God is making it known that it has always been his plan for the Gentiles to be a part of the church, a part of this new work that God is doing. And he does that by sending, specifically sending an apostle to the Gentiles and working through him so that they might know him. Now, some might have thought it shameful that Paul was sitting in prison at this point for the sake of preaching the gospel. But I think part of the point in chapter 3 is that both Jew and Gentile alike are are being made to understand that God is serious about building this multi-ethnic church. And so there isn't anything that he's not willing to do. And that includes sending his chosen instrument to prison for preaching the gospel to them. Well, Paul, for his part, was willing to suffer for Christ's sake. He was willing to fulfill the role that Christ had given him. Again, his last words to the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 that we referenced earlier, he says this in 20 verse 24, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I love that verse. It can fix my heart every time I read it. I wonder how many of us feel the same way about the plans and purposes of God and our part to play in that. Paul said, even if I suffer, even if I die, it doesn't matter. What matters the most is finishing the course set before me by God. Now, God has not called all of us to proclaim the gospel of his grace. He hasn't called any of us to be apostles in that same sense, right? But he has called us to make disciples. And he has called each of us, as we'll see in the letter of Ephesians, to be functioning members of the church. Underscore functioning. He's given us gifts, each of us. And so we ought to be using those gifts to build up the body. And if we're not, then we're disregarding the plan of God. Paul says, I don't consider my life of value or or precious to myself, but only that I may finish the course that Jesus left for me. We should feel the same way about his plans for us in the church. Again, Paul was the sender. Now we see the recipients of the saints who are in Ephesus who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Again, Paul wrote this letter to the saints in Ephesus. The term saints is significant. I appreciate the fact that Deacon Chris referenced this in his prayer earlier. He doesn't call them the sinners at Ephesus. In fact, rarely do we see a group of believers referred to as sinners. We are beloved. We are children of God. We were sinners like the rest, but now in Christ we are saints. That is who we are. Not because of anything particularly special about us, but because that's our new identity in Christ. 
You'll talk much about that term in Christ. It's one of Paul's favorites. He uses it repeatedly throughout this letter. But that's our identity. We're in Christ, and therefore we are saints. We are holy ones. We're set apart. Finally, in verse 2, we see Paul's greeting. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've said this before, again, when we were studying Philippians, but what do you need when you are trying to encourage someone from afar? What do you do? You commend them to the grace of God. And often, grace and peace go together. Knowing the grace of God, his gift that we don't deserve, his powerful, unconditional, favorable work on our behalf, knowing the grace of God is the pathway to peace. And peace, again, that Hebrew idea of wholeness, of completeness, that is what makes us whole or complete. What makes us whole or complete is to know that God is at work in our lives, giving us what we do not deserve. Paul nearly always leads off his letters with a desire for people to know the grace and peace of God. He begins that here, and he ends the end of this letter also with the peace and grace of God. I think that's beautiful. If you don't know what to pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ, pray this. If you know that someone is missing from the church, and you know that they're hurting, they're weak, they're sick, pray this. Pray for the peace of God to be known as the grace of God is shown to them. Pray that. Just pray that for them. Pray that for me if you don't want to pray it for anyone else. Well, again, I pray that the Lord would be gracious to us, that he would give us peace as we embark on this new study in the letter to the Ephesians. I pray that he would use it to give us a greater focus on his purposes for the church, how we can together with one another know his love and best show his glory to the world. I pray that we would not continue to be influenced by the world, a world that is withdrawing into itself, increasingly becoming self-absorbed, self-focused, self-centered, like that adolescent youth that we referred to earlier, but that we would be the people of God, that we would be God-centered, that we would be centered on a desire to magnify his glory, that we would do that together as only his church can. Father, we thank you again for today. Thank you for your word, which is true. Thank you for so many reminders in the letter to the Ephesians. And particularly that you have designed your church to exist for your glory. That we are here not for our own good, not so that you can make much of us, but that we are here so that we together being the unified but diverse group of people that we are, that we would together exist and declare your glory to the world. As we conclude and as we think about our concluding hymn, to God be the glory, Father, let that be our prayer here at Catonsville Baptist Church, that you would be glorified in us that we would see glorifying you as our primary responsibility in this world, that it would guide and control all of our decisions on a day-to-day -day basis and as we engage with one another in the body of Christ for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.